But you know, you'll agree with me, I'm sure, that change is never easy uh, for any of us in any, in any way. Sometimes change has to happen. We know it has to happen and we prepare for it. But when it comes, it's, 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 it's another thing uh, altogether. And sometimes change is kind of uh, uh, forced on us. Uh, there's things that happen in life and we didn't expect them and we have to adjust and, and we have to make the change. But I have to say to you that even though change happens, and it happens all the time, the mission of God will go on. It will go on because his word guarantees that it will go on. Uh, and, and ultimately, God's mission uh, is bigger than any pastor or any local church. And uh, I, I'm excited in, in many ways because we're both, uh, both you and I are on the threshold of uh, uh, as we've been uh, talking about the last few weeks, crossing over into a new tomorrow. And uh, with God's help and, and God's future leading, who knows? Who knows what adventures? Who knows what blessings uh, are yet to be received in the days that lie ahead as we move into them expectantly? Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, I look forward uh, uh, to fellowshiping with you again uh, in, in, in the future at, at some at some time, the Lord willing. And so as I thought about today uh, and what to share with you today, I, I prayed and I thought hard about what I should speak about. Um, and you know, uh, somebody mentioned last night that at the dinner it was like the Last Supper. Well, I, I thought, well, maybe I should talk about the lot, but then, you know, there was a crucifixion after the Last Supper, and I thought, no, that's... Uh, <laughs> um, but as you know, on Sunday evenings, those of you who have been able to come out uh, and you've seen the announcements, we've been studying the Beatitudes that relate to the deeper life, uh, the Beatitudes, what God calls us to be. And uh, we've been talking about how when we live out that life that Jesus describes in the Beatitudes, um, it was Max Lucado who coined the phrase that we receive the applause of heaven. God looks down when we're living the life he calls us to and he says, there goes my child. There goes my son. Well done. God bless you. There goes my daughter. Claws of heaven. Well done. Keep going. Well, we've been doing that uh, for, for quite a few weeks now. And, uh, and tonight uh, we're coming to the eighth and the final beatitude tonight. Uh, and as I read on then after that in, in Matthew chapter 5, uh, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, following the Beatitudes, Jesus finishes that section with a couple of profound statements. And it might seem a little bit backwards, but I want to draw on what Jesus said immediately after in this uh, Sermon on the Mount in, in verses 13 through 16. So turn to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to read uh, the latter part, and we'll come back tonight to verses 10 through 12. But we're going to read just from verse 13 in Matthew chapter 5 and I want to, to share with you what it means to pour on the salt and to switch on the light uh, that's the title I've given to this message uh, for us as a church and as God's people Jesus said you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men you are the light of the world Remember, Jesus described himself. Uh, uh, Glenn was talking last night about the I am's of Jesus and, and that he is the great I am. And he, he did say on one occasion, I am the light of the world. But here he says, you, 
God's people are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds or your good works and praise or glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Uh, I read a quote the other day. Uh, George Burns, some of you might remember that old American comedian. Uh, and he was once asked, what makes a good sermon? Now, he wasn't, I don't think, a professing Christian by any manner of means, but he was asked by somebody, what makes a good sermon? And he said, the secret of a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending and have those two as close together as possible. <laughs> it's a bit late to tell you that before my last message, but um, I'm not going to change the habit of a lifetime. But anyway, um, let me ask you to consider a simple and yet a profound question. What is the church? What is the church? If somebody was to say to you, you're up the street in Monaghan, you're in the shopping center, or you're, you're out and about, and somebody said, hey, what, what is the church? Uh, now, to begin with, in Matthew chapter 16, and verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. You know that verse. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So first of all, uh, he's the head of the church. He's the head of this church, not the elders, as important as they think they might be. Not the session, as important they might think that they might be, or any pastor. The head of every church is Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we find that the church consists of one body, Christ's body, but it has many members, you and I. And furthermore, in John chapter 15, we see that Jesus says that he is the vine and we are the branches. And we're encouraged to remain in relationship with him in order to bear fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We had a sermon series on that a while back, uh, which really, when you boil it down, it's Christ-likeness, fruit that will last for eternity. In fact, in John 15 and 8, Jesus is emphatic when he says, this is to my Father's glory. What's to my Father's glory? That you, my people, bear much fruit. Showing yourselves to be my disciples. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9, For we are God's servants, work, working together. You are God's field and God's building. And I believe that nothing's more important in all of life than the privilege of being mobilized to be a fellow worker with God uh, in this day and age. To be workers together with God. It's been said that in the, in the church of Christ on earth, there's a lot of Christians who are doing nothing. But there are no Christians who have nothing to do. Basically, Paul's saying there's something for all of us to do. There's no unemployment in God's kingdom. There's no part-time Christians in the church. At least there shouldn't be. Because we're all important members of God's workforce, his servants. Uh, some of us are the ones who will plant seed. Uh, seed of the gospel through, through things that we say or, or, or some, some of our actions, things that we do. Others, other of us are those that make maybe the last connection for someone when they finally take that step of faith uh, to, to receive Christ. While in between that, uh, there's still others, many others, who water the seed until it comes to fruition and nurture the plant 
after it's sprung into life through discipling or, or, or fellowship or pastoral care and, and a host of other things. So God is always looking for people who will commit to being his servants, working together with him. I don't know if I shared this with you before, but it's worth sharing again. I came across a letter that was circulated by a pastor of a large congregation, and it read this. Dear member, our church membership is 1,400 people. Members who have moved away, 75. Balance left to do the work, 1,325. Elderly who have done their share in the past, 25. Balance left to do the work, 1,300. Those who are sick and shut-ins and can't help, uh, 25. Balance left to do the work, 1,275. Christmas and Easter only members and those who only periodically attend, 350. Balance left to do the work, 625. Members who are overworked, 300. Balance left to do the work, 325. Members with alibis and all kinds of excuses, 200. Balance left to do the work, 125. Members otherwise too busy, 123. Balance left to do the work, 2. You and me. And I'm pretty busy as it is, so it's all up to you. <laughs> now obviously it's not up to just any one of us. It's up to all of us being mobilized together. And in Matthew chapter 5, in, in the verses that we read there, in this particular description of the church, Jesus is throwing out a tremendous challenge. He's not talking here about the, the, the theory of the church. He's not talking uh, about the theology of the church. He's telling us about the practice of being church, of, of our faith. And I have to say that that's really where the rubber hits the road for, for many of us, me included. It touches that point of tension between what we say we believe and we're all good at saying what we believe, and then how we behave. Uh, between what we profess and what we practice. Between our creed and our conduct. And so this morning with our limited time, it's, it's worth pointing out that Jesus spoke these words to his disciples. This Sermon on the Mount was geared primarily to his disciples. Uh, and of course there were others listening in but it was to his disciples his, his, his first 12 followers that he had called out and so these words apply to everyone who has taken up their cross and are seeking to live their life in obedience to Jesus Christ you and you and you and I we are the salt of the earth Jesus says we are the light of of the world and together he says we are like a city on a hill that's who each of us are by virtue of our commitment to Christ that's our identity both individually and together as the body of Christ now over 250 years ago at the start of a time of of great spiritual revival across North America uh, pastor Jonathan Edwards uh, a great American pastor and revivalist preached a sermon from this particular text that we've read to his congregation in Northampton, Massachusetts. That was 250 years ago, and he called it a city on a hill. And in that sermon, he asked the question, how do you know if a church, a particular group of believers and followers of Jesus, can be described, properly described, biblically described, as a city on a hill? And he went on to identify three marks of a city on a hill. 
He said a church anywhere can be described as a city on a hill if it has a distinct biblical faith. Secondly, a church is a city on a hill if God has done something spiritually distinct in it. And thirdly, a church is a city on a hill if it or any of its members has had or is having a distinct spiritual influence or impact on others. And if these three marks of a city on a hill, uh, as Jesus describes it really, uh, is valid, then the question becomes, is this church a city on a hill? Uh, and while I haven't had much experience of Monaghan Elam, let me give you a few observations this morning. Let's take the first mark. A city on a hill, a church, can be called that if it has a distinct biblical faith. Does Monaghan Elam have a distinct biblical faith, a devotion to the inerrant truth and the authority of, of Scripture, of God's Word? I think we all recognize that the, the cultural shift that has taken place over the last 50 or more years uh, and parallel to this has been a, a, a doctrinal or a theological drift in many churches, uh, many churches you could say even around here probably. It seems that over these years, whilst Monaghan Elam is not a perfect church, I've told you that before, uh, there's been a succession of godly leaders that have stood firm uh, on the teaching and the preaching of truth without compromise or yielding to error. And of course, uh, you heard me pray, and many of you know that a pastor, a previous pastor here, Cameron Crawford, passed into heaven um, a few days ago. And he was a faithful preacher of the word of God. And there have been others, and there's been faithful leaders, lay leaders in this church through the years as well, who have held to the truth of God's word. According to Psalm 119, verse 89, God's word is forever settled in heaven, and so it should be forever settled in our hearts. Because God's word is to be the sole standard for, for everything that any church does. And so I believe that that's one of the marks that this church has. It can be called a city on a hill because it has a distinct biblical faith. I'm sure you're aware that, a, that there's a new way in many places across this country. And, 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 and further than that, uh, a new way of doing church that's been emerging in recent years. And this radical shift, the exposition of God's word has been replaced with entertainment, preaching with performance, theology with theatrics, and the pulpit. Once the focal point of the church has now been overshadowed by trendy worship styles and, and, and feel-good preaching, uh, it's almost like a psychology instead of the, the inerrant truth of God's word. And many ministries and many churches have sacrificed the centrality, centrality of biblical preaching on the altar of man-made pragmatism. And listen, although the truth of God's word may offend some people, nevertheless the world is filled, I believe, with people who are, who are searching for truth. And when people grasp God's truth and own it for themselves, not by proxy because they may have be married to a Christian or they may have been born into a Christian family but when they own it for themselves it will become contagious I believe that the early church knew that in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 it says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching amongst other things and Christianity as we know spread like wildfire but where churches today have forgotten or neglected 
uh, this truth, the truth of God's word, they've drifted and in some cases they've died and uh, churches have been turned into bingo halls and they've been turned into shops and all, coffee shops and all sorts of things. But at all costs, we the people, the church, must mobilize ourselves first to be steadfastly devoted to studying and obeying God's word and thereby maintaining a distinct and unwavering faith in the truth. With regard to the second mark of a city on a hill, the question is, has God done something spiritually distinct in Monaghan Elam through the years? And is he still doing so today? And of course, there are some of you here that can answer that uh, maybe better than me. Is there evidence of God's grace and God's hand of blessing in the life of this church? And as I stand before you today with just two years experience and limited experience at that, I have to say, yes, God has been gracious through these past two years and many years before that some of you could tell me about. God has been gracious. But I believe God has done a great work in and through this church. And I believe that God has many more amazing things as we've, we've talked about recently in store in the years ahead. But you know, George Barna, he's a Christian researcher about the church and he has a book called The Second Coming of the Church. He points out that the pace of change has accelerated uh, to the point that society now reinvents itself about every five years. And the church has to do the same or face oblivion by the middle of the 21st century. In other words, changing times call for churches that can respond with a strong biblical faith and the courage to adjust their methods uh, to the needs of the moment. God is always seeking to mobilize and move us forward by his amazing grace. And there will be change and there will be more change. He wants to do a distinct work in each generation and for such a time as this. And he invites us to join him in this great work. And then that leads us to the third mark of a city on a hill. Are the people of Monaghan Elam having a distinct spiritual influence or impact on the lives of others? Or as Jesus puts it, are we being salt and light? Remember that in the first part of the sermon, the first 12 verses, Jesus defines the, the character, the be attitudes of a believer. He presupposes that his disciples would develop this kind of character. And so he then asks, in effect, this is the kind of character that you must now use to influence the world. What we have in these very simple but profound four verses is the picture that Jesus gives of the Christian in the world, the function of the believer in the world, if you like. And if we could reduce it to one word, it would be influence. Influence. And I know from my own experience with some of you that you are those sort of people of influence and you have impacted people's lives. Christian writer puts it this way, for all of us, you are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by works that you do and by words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faultless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? And that's precisely what Jesus is now teaching his disciples. He's talking about influence and uh, how about you and I, uh, about you, how you and I are to affect or to influence the world in which we live. And let me, let me just admit up front, oh, that's not easy these days. It's not easy 
It's not an easy assignment. In many ways, it, it might seem like an impossible task. In his prayer to God in John 17, Jesus says, I pray not that you would take them out of the world. But then in the very next sentence, he says, they are not of the world. And then one verse later, he says, so I have sent them into the world. And later on, Jesus says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. So in other words, Jesus is saying, I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. I have sent you to the world, but don't love the world. And what a paradox to wrestle with. How can we be in the world, but not of the world, sent to the world, and warned not to love it at the same time? And the answer comes in verses 13 through 16 that we read. We have to be salt and light in order to be effective or to have influence. You know, salt has to be mingled with the substance it's affecting. And yet salt is distinct from that substance. And light, in order to dispel darkness, must shine in the darkness, and yet it's distinct from the darkness. And of course, that refreshing possibility is illustrated beautifully in the life of Christ himself, isn't it? Because he had contact with the world without experiencing contamination from the world. And so the emphasis in this text is on Christians being what we are and what we have to continue to be. We are salt. We are to continue to be salt. And listen, we are the only salt in the world. This is not about what we should be. This is about what we are if we say we're a Christian. The idea isn't, Jesus didn't say, please be salt. Uh, it's you are salt. Like it or not, we're the salt of the earth as God's people. And the only question is whether we're salty or whether we've lost our salty flavor. We either have a Christian savor or flavor, if you want to use that word, or we don't. You know, I can remember years ago, you would buy a packet of crisps, and there was no such thing as prawn cocktail and smoky bacon and barbecue, and there was just plain crisps. But inside the bag, do you remember? There was a wee blue bag. Any of you remember that? And what was in the blue bag? Salt. Salt. Oh, you used to have to hope to find that in the bag of crisps. And those days, it was a bag of crisps, not a few in the bottom of the bag. And the rest was filled with air. But it was, wee, it was a wee blue bag. And you'd take the blue bag out and you'd, it was twisted and you'd have to open it up. And you'd, you'd, you'd sprinkle it in and then you'd shake the bag and you had, you had salty crisps. Well, we're supposed to be salty as Christians. By the way, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, that's a, a plural word. Jesus is talking about the collective body of believers. And, and well, of course he is. I mean, you don't just put one grain of salt on anything, do you? You don't say pass the salt and then pick out a little grain and, and kind of drop it onto a sirloin steak. That's of no use. You don't do that. Salt functions best in combination with all the other grains of salt. And in order to influence the world, the church must be collective salt. It's not good enough. It's not good enough to be a lone ranger Christian. Or some people think they can just be a Christian on their own. Well, let me remind you, if you remember that TV series, The Lone Ranger, even The Lone Ranger had Tonto. The collective. It wasn't on his own. And we're a body. And we need to play our part in using our collective influence. You know, churches today sadly have a tendency 
to brag about the size and shape of their salt shaker. Church buildings. Or the amount of salt they put into their salt shaker. You know, their Sunday attendance. Rather than pouring out their saltiness into the communities where they are with the good news of the gospel and good works for the sake of Jesus Christ. Jesus never called us to live isolated or insulated lives. He wants us out of the salt shaker. The whole point of salt is to leave the shaker and to hit the food. So we have to find ways to influence and impact our world with the life of Christ that's in us and give the world a taste of who Jesus Christ is. Taste and see, the Bible says, that God is good. And the biblical worldview and the presupposition here is that we live, we live in a decaying uh, world that isn't getting any better. In fact, it's getting worse. And to be sure, we've developed, we've developed our knowledge in areas of medicine, and thank goodness for that, and science and technology and history and sociology and all of that stuff. We have information coming out of our ears. But when it comes to the inward knowledge of why people are what they are, excuse me, and to the truth of life and death and eternity and God, man himself has no answers. And all this knowledge that we have has, has had no effect on the corruption and sin that's in the culture. Every day brings new breakthroughs in medicine and science and communications and mass production. And yet at the same time, the moral climate grows darker and darker and darker. It's like a piece of meat that, that you take out and you leave it all out all day, uh, maybe on the road in the sunshine. And the decay is slow at first. And then suddenly the whole thing's rotten. And after decay, there comes a falling apart. And what we're seeing in our society today is a falling apart of everything around us. Marriages are falling apart in many, many instances. Families are being broken up and scattered. Law and order is being laughed at. The basic institutions of our society are, are threatened near to distinction. And many of the structures that we see in our society that look healthy on the outside are rotten on the inside with corruption and all sorts of other things. And it's only a matter of time before they collapse and they fall apart around our ears. But Paul in his day said that men would have a form of godliness but would deny the power thereof. And Jesus himself asked a more pointed question. He said, nevertheless, he said, when the Son of Man comes back, when he returns, shall he find faith on the earth? Will there be any salty Christians around? It's a very inconvenient truth that if the world is getting darker, and you probably would agree with me, I hope you would, but it's not because of politics or the economy or anything like that. It's simply that the church, the people of God, have lost their saltiness. Instead of the church influencing the world, the church has been influenced by the world. And if the lost are not being reached by the gospel, either we're not living it, or telling it, but either way we're defaulting on our calling to be salt and to be light. Os Guinness is a great theologian and he said this, he said the problem with Christians in the West in particular is not that Christians aren't where they should be. He said the problem is that they're not what they should be, right where they are. It's long since been researched that the number one problem of the church Today is lack of influence and relevance. 
And if you were to go around Monaghan this morning and add up the attendance in all the churches, roughly 80% statistically of the population, typically of any Western community, won't be in church today. Can you imagine that? Maybe it's different in Monaghan, I don't know. Monaghan County has about 60,000 people. 80% of them don't go to church regularly or don't go to church at all. Do you know how many that is in our community? That's 48,000. What a mission field. What a mission field. But simply and, and soberly, many churches today have lost their influence in the community. And, and while there's many other reasons for that, perhaps one of them is because Christians have neglected their responsibility to be salt and to be light in the world. And as we've neglected to be what God has called us to be, the world has decided to ignore us. A sobering question to ask ourselves is, how are our neighborhoods, our town, our kids' schools different because we are there? And if Monaghan Elam were to close its doors, would our community miss us? Realize that salt that loses its saltiness is actually an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. It's like saying that water can lose its wetness. Strictly speaking, salt can't lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is actually a stable chemical compound. And today, the salt that you have on your dinner table when you go home to have your dinner has been refined so many times that it's impossible for it to lose its saltiness. But the salt in Jesus' day was seldom pure. And the salt collected around the Dead Sea, for example, contained a mixture of many other minerals, still does today, allowing the pure salt to be potentially washed out, leaving a, a useless residue that lacked the salty taste. And not only could it be diluted, it could also be polluted, maybe with some sand or some soil or dirt mixed in. And the result, uh, that while it may still have the appearance of salt, the taste and the, and the preserving influence would be gone. And interestingly, the literal meaning of the word translated tasteless means to become foolish. And so it's likely that Jesus is using a pun here to suggest that if his disciples lose their saltiness, they're making fools of themselves. They're going to look foolish. <coughs> and tragic, tragically, there are many Christians like that today. Their lives are a walking contradiction. And instead of influencing the culture, they're being polluted by the culture. And in the first century, when salt became tasteless for whatever reason, it was thrown on the ground where people uh, wanted a hard path because salt had a hardening effect on the soil. People would then walk right on top of the salt, trample it into the ground. And this metaphor that Jesus uses here doesn't mean that tasteless disciples will lose their salvation. That's not what he's saying. It indicates that they can lose their testimony and they can lose their influence and can cause themselves to be in a backslidden state towards God. And yet God has placed us here to be a symbol of his continuing relationship with and his mission to the world. And we are the extension of his hands and his feet in this community. So Paul says in Colossians chapter 4, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, 
so that you may know how to answer everyone. Well, before I finish this morning, let me say something about light. In the book of Genesis, we know that in the original state of nature, it was one of darkness. And it took an act of God coming in and saying, let there be light, in order to bring light and life to it. And human nature too was plunged into darkness when original sin entered into our, wor- into our soul. And it's into a world that's shrouded and has been plunged into the deepest darkness that Jesus says to us, you, my people, are the light of the world. You are the guides to help people find their way out of the darkness of sin and into his marvelous light. What a privilege to think that we are lights in perhaps the darkest hour of history that there has ever been. The darkness seems to be closing in in so many different ways. But then in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. Notice he says, you were darkness, and not now you are in the light, but you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. Of course, our, our light, our spiritual light, if you like, is derived from the, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And isn't it a great mystery to think that although it's from him, somehow it becomes ours. The church of Jesus Christ becomes that light. And even though we don't contribute one individual ray to the light that we are. And not only that, but Jesus says emphatically that we must let our light shine. Jesus isn't saying that we're the light source. He's the light source. He's the son of righteousness, as it were. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So that makes us simply, but more importantly, light reflectors. We simply reflect Christ in the mirror of our lives and our living. And in so doing, we we embrace this calling and we discharge this responsibility as we let the light of Jesus shine in us and then shine through us. (coughs) Jesus didn't say, you're the light of the church. He said, you're the light of the world. And that means it's not only important when you walk through those doors into this church that you let your light shine. It's most important when you walk back out of those doors that you let your light shine. You may have heard me tell the story of Robert Louis Stevenson before, but it's worth repeating. Robert Louis Stevenson's best known for his adventure story that many of us have read, Treasure Island. Uh, he was in poor health through most of his childhood and his youth. And one night his nurse found him with his nose pressed up against the frosty pane of his bedroom window. Come away from there, she said. You'll catch your death of cold. But young Robert wouldn't budge. He sat mesmerized as he watched an old lamplighter back in those days, slowly working his way through the black night and the fog, lighting each street lamp as he went. And pointing to him, young Robert Louis Stevenson said to his nurse, Look, there's a man poking holes in the darkness. And I like that expression, poking holes in the darkness. What a marvelous picture that is of our calling and our responsibility as light being the light of the world. It's our job to poke holes in the spiritual darkness of our sin-filled world. The Christian has an answer for the chaos and the hurt and the misery that surrounds us. And we don't have to be big to be effective. We just have to be on, have our light on.
let our light shine. Listen, if the light doesn't shine, it's not because of the darkness. The darkness can't put out the light. No one has ever yet smothered a light by increasing the darkness. Rather, the darkness only gets darker because the light fails. And darkness gets darker when we put our lamp under a, under a bowl or a bushel or we hide it in some way. But Christianity is something that really has to be seen. And if we're going to be the lights of the world that God intends us to be, then we need to be seen and not just heard. Our Christianity should be perfectly visible to everyone. And what I'm saying is that most people won't come right out and say it, but you'd better believe that they're thinking that they're not interested in committing their lives to Christ unless they observe attractive, consistent patterns in living in the Christians that they know. Joe Aldrich, in a book called Lifestyle Evangelism, puts it like this. Christians are to be good news. They're to be good news before they can share good news. And Jesus could have said, you know, when they hear your great preachers or when they sit in your lovely sanctuaries or when they hear your beautiful worship or when they read your statements of faith, he could have said that, but he didn't. He said simply, when they see the way you live, your Christ-likeness, your reflection of the light. Someone has written, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one would walk with me than merely tell the way. The eyes a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. The best of all the preachers are men who live their creeds. For to see good put in action is what everybody needs. I soon can learn to do it if you let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action. Your tongue too fast may run. The lectures you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. For I might misunderstand you and the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. Let me finish with three practical things we can do to become salt and light. And firstly, we've already talked about it, you have to make contact. Salt's no good sitting on the table. You know, you get a nice dinner, a nice meal, hopefully you get one at lunchtime, you may want to reach for the salt, but you'll want to pour the salt over it to add taste. You have to get out and rub shoulders with the people of the world. Many of you work in environments every day with unbelievers or you belong to voluntary organizations or community sports teams or whatever what a great opportunity to get to know people to make contact allow them to see the light of Jesus in your everyday life Matthew 9 and 35 tells us that when Jesus went out into all the cities and villages he saw the multitudes were weary and he had compassion on them and he went into the community and he saw the needs of the people and we'll never know what our community needs and we know they need Jesus They'll never know that they need Jesus themselves until we get outside the church building and into the community and make contact. And secondly, we're to build relationships. And I believe it's clear that the normal conduit for the truth and for the gospel is through relationships. We must care for people as lost people, not just as potential converts. We have to love them. And notice that the message it's communicated in both words and works. Paul and his partners demonstrated on a day-to-day -day basis what life was like as a Christian. And if you read the book of Thessalonians, you'll see that the goodness that Jesus produced in Paul and his followers touched those that he was ministering to. And then the last thing is simply to be available. 
make contact, build relationships, be available. When you live the kind of goodness in front of others, it will cause some to desire the same kind of life that you have. And so we need to be ready for the day when someone drawn by our saltiness, reflecting uh, Christ through our lives, asks how they can have what we have. As Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You know, as Christians, you know, we're, we're all too commonly thinking, well, we need to tell people. And, and there's a sense in which we do. We need to tell the gospel story. But Peter says, be prepared to give an answer. You only give an answer when somebody asks a question, right? And so you have to live your life in such a way that people ask questions. And then you're able to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. Then Jesus ends with this thought in verse 16. They will praise or glorify your Father who is in heaven. And did you notice the words, your Father who is in heaven? Your, the word your is used three times in, verse, in this verse. Your, your light, your good deeds, your Father in heaven. When we let our light shine before men, they glorify God. That's how much influence we have. We can point men and women and boys and girls to Christ. We can lead them out of darkness into light. In other words, what begins on earth will end in heaven. When we do the shining, God gets the credit and gets the glory. And we have in who we are in Christ uh, all we need to be an enormous influence for good. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And I can imagine no greater privilege. We can make an eternal difference to the people around us. And let me just finish by telling you that the most exciting thing about this is that you don't need a Bible college degree. You don't need a Christian college education. If you're a Christian, you're already salt and light. You don't need a Bachelor of Salt or a Doctor of Light degree. You have everything that you need right now. So you're salt. So get out of the shaker and pour yourself into others who need Jesus. You're light, so crawl out from under the bushel basket and let your light shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. There's plenty of darkness in the world, but let's not despair. The darker the night, the brighter the light will shine. And we aren't called to save the whole world, but we're called to make a difference. We can't do everything, but we can do something. And what we can do, we ought to do, because that's what being salt and light is all about. So let's go and make a difference in the world. Because at the end of the day, folks, at the end of the day, we're the only salt and light that the world will observe. So let's be different and let's make a difference. Even this morning, you may want to covenant in your heart with me before God that that's what you want to do. Going from this place, Lord, help me to be the salt and light that you have made me to be. I've uh, prepared a little card. It's uh, called a salt and light commitment. Uh, you'll find it on the welcome desk. You can take it um, uh, on your way out and there's a place for you to sign it. You might want to sign it today and put today's date on it and put it in your Bible as a reminder that from this moment on you want to be salt and you want to be light. And it says this. I'll just ask the worship team to, uh, uh, to come up. Mindful that I'm not called to save the world, I'm called to make a difference. And while I can't do everything, I can do something. So what I can do, I ought to do. Here's the salt commitment. Today I commit 
as a disciple of Jesus Christ to being a salt influence amongst the people that I encounter in daily life as God gives me the opportunity. I understand that this might mean speaking up unashamedly as a Christian at work or school, refusing to be involved in certain ungodly behaviours, taking an unpopular biblical stand on public moral issues, or taking some criticism or ridicule for my faith. <coughs> we'll talk about that tonight if you're here. And then the light commitment. Today I commit as a disciple of Jesus Christ to being a light to illuminate the spiritual darkness around me as God gives me opportunity. I understand that this may mean holy boldness in my speech and beauty in my life, deeds of everyday kindness, sacrificing my time for serving others, living my life in such a way that it points people to Jesus and it gives glory to God.